Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Robert Sterling uh, operates in the world of finance. I don't really know much of anything about who he is other than that. Uh, He's a pretty prominent investor. Maybe some of you know his name. Uh, I personally didn't. Uh, But he had a tweet back in July that went, as they call, viral. Um, It had around 19,000 likes, around 4,000 comments, around 4,000 retweets, and was seen by nearly 5 million people. Uh, Here's what he said that went so viral. It's a little bit lengthy, but I'm going to read it in total. He says this, Robert Sterling does. He said, I'm telling you guys, there's something deeply unwell in our society right now. You're not going to see it if you're a member of the select far right-hand side of the bell curve. If you and your peer group are educated, financially successful, and healthy, our society probably feels better than ever. But travel outside that bubble that most of us here, myself included, inhabit, and you'll notice a pervasive sense that something just isn't right. I don't know what it is. It's more than economic It's more than physical health or anything material, though it certainly creates ripples effects across all those domains. It's nothing less than metaphysical. For lack of a better term, it's a vibe shift. It's a sense of apathy that you feel emanating from far too many people. It's a lack of aspiration, of seeking a better life, and better conditions for oneself. It's dead eyes, pop music, and cinema that just feels lifeless. A world where too few of us feel like we have a purpose, and too many of us feel, too many of us are finding nothing but despair on six-inch phone screens. I don't know what the causes are. I'm sure social media economic malaise, COVID lockdowns, fentanyl, and every other reason we hear about factor into it. All of those reasons, though, in aggregate, still feel insufficient. They might be symptoms that compound the underlying disease, but they are not in and of themselves the root cause. I also don't know what the solution is. I wish I did. I'm one small person just trying to spread positive vibes on social media and trying to raise my kids right. But I'm 100% certain that something is wrong. And I hate seeing it. And I wish there were something I could do about it. It's a pretty striking paragraph of words. It goes pretty deep that Sterling says something is afoot. Something is wrong. There's, there's a vibe. There's a sense of desperation. And while maybe your economic class 
somehow insulates you a little bit from that. He also mentions the fact that it's beyond something economic. It's beyond simply health. It's beyond the day-to-day. There's something metaphysical. There's something unseen. There's something that can't be measured by a scientific process. There's something that's wrong. According to data released from the CDC, nearly 50,000 Americans, mainly men, committed suicide in 2022. Not sure the exact numbers yet for 2023, but it's projected to be well over 50,000. Once again, men being a significant part of that number. I realize what I just shared is heavy and weighty and doesn't deserve simplistic answers. And so what we're going to talk about this morning isn't meant to put kind of like a quick band-aid on something that's real complex. But at the same time, I think God has a perspective for what actually is wrong. God has a perspective on who we are as human beings. And Sterling somewhat rightfully admits that solutions don't seem to be available in and among ourselves. And in fact, the message of Scripture is that solutions aren't available. We don't, we're not in a self-fixing kind of situation. That The condition of human beings, the condition of our micro-lives, as well as the macro-big picture, there's something wrong that's beyond education, that's beyond economic, that's beyond physical health. There's, there, there's a bigger problem at stake. And we would believe that the story of Scripture is actually the story of what is wrong. It's a story of how we got there. It's also a story of hope and of confidence that's There's a God at work within this broken story in which we presently live. Back in the fall, we began a series in the book of Ephesians, and we looked at Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. And during that time, we looked at some of the main themes of what we as followers of Jesus believe. And some people would say that the central theme, the, the gigantic overall theme of the book of Ephesians, it's this letter in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul writes to the people of Ephesus. The theme of that is God's new society. That this God of the universe, this creator, that yes, even though the story is broken, he's, he's stepped into it. In the season of Christmas, in the person of Jesus, he stepped into it and he's in the process of creating a new kind of person, a transformed person, and someday he'll bring that to fruition. We're going to step into chapter 3 here in a little bit, and we're mostly just going to look at the verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. But before we do that, let me just kind of take a moment to review something that we went, went through back in the fall, just so you can get some idea and perspective. In chapter 1 and 2 primarily, Ephesians is about new life. That's the theme, new life. Throughout those chapters, Paul talks about the person of Jesus. 
And he says it's through Jesus, our connection with Jesus, that we can actually experience life. In verses 3 through 14, in the original language in which the letter was written in, in Greek, the words in Christ or in him or in whom occur 11 times. And so Paul, right out of the chute, understands that the solution to our problem, the solution to it, sterling seas, this solution that somehow seems elusive to us as human beings, truly actually is indeed elusive to us. But there's something that God is doing in the person of Jesus to step into that brokenness, to step into that mess, to step into our world, to bring restoration and reconciliation. Let me just read a couple of these verses, again, kind of as a matter of review. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we actually already read this together as a congregation this morning. Dan let us in that. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so there's something about the person of Jesus that blesses us with the presence of God. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. You hear, in Christ Jesus, with him. Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. You hear in those verses the theme of Ephesians 1 and 2, that, there's, that, that through Jesus stepping into this world, there's new life. There's, God reconnects, reestablishes his relationship with us. Next is not only new life, but Ephesians goes on, and this will be kind of our focus for the next couple months. He says, not only is there new life, God is also creating a new society. There's a renewed community of people who experience this new life together. Now, this community of people isn't sort of like, ah, you're inside or you're outside. It's, it's not tribalistic in that way. But there's a sense of this renewed community that is in Christ, that has embraced him, that walks with him, that seeks to obey him. And so... We looked at that a little bit at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul started to talk about the reconciliation of ethnicities of Jews and Gentiles. Ephesians 2.18, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. It's a new kind of community. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 6, it's the end of the verses for this morning. This, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That might be a little bit challenging to understand, and we're not going to dive into the details of it now, but suffice it to say, Paul is making clear that there's a new kind of renewed community of people who have faith and trust in God that, that Jesus is at work through in this world. And that somehow this work of Christ supersedes natural divisions that we would otherwise have. That it kind of breaks down barriers. That it sort of kicks down those things that separate us. 
as we participate in this new community in Christ. On chapters 4 and 5, Paul moves on to there's new standards. And again, we're going to be kind of looking at these two uh, between now and around the middle of March. There's, There's new standards. Here's what he says, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, that we'll get to. He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. Did you hear that? This, this, those who experience new life through Christ are brought into this new community of people belonging to God, and that new community of people behaves differently than we otherwise would. We put off falsehood. We speak truthfully to one another. And so there's a new kind of standard, a new kind of dynamic. There's a a new way that we live and operate in our lives. Ephesians 4, 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. If you remember... Uh, back in the fall, we said, I can't remember the numbers right now. There it is. Uh, there's 41 imperatives in the book of Ephesians, 41 commands that Paul gives. The interesting thing is only one of them happens in chapters one through three, because Paul is saying, here's what it looks like to have a new life. In Christ. It's not a behavioral thing that gives you new life in Christ. It's not a behavioral thing that makes you part of God's redeemed, his renewed community of people. But then in chapters 4 and 5 and 6, there's 40 imperatives, there's 40 commands as how these people who are believers in Jesus, how that should be reflected in their daily lives. And so over the next couple months, we're going to kind of focus in on those two things. And then uh, four, there's also new relationship. There's new relationships. Paul talks about marriage. He talks about relationships within human dynamics. He talks even about relationship with the spiritual forces of darkness and evil. How we relate to the powers of the evil one that seek to destroy our lives. How we strengthen ourselves in God's truth. Now, Why do I go through all that? Well, because in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3, and Fajer is going to come up, and she's going to read this in a second. Come on up, Fajer. Here's the way that Paul begins verse 1 of chapter 3 that we're going to be looking at this morning. Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Notice the first words out of his mouth in verse 1 of chapter 3 is, is, For this reason. In other words, you really can't understand chapter 3 and following without particularly understanding the last part of chapter 2 and chapter 1 and 2 together. And so Paul says this, this new community of people, this new standard that we have, before you kind of get there, you have to understand the larger story of, being, of ha- having an experience new life in Christ. You've got to be in Christ. You've got to have faith and trust in him. You've got to be part of God's active community of people. And then Paul says, okay, here's some rollout implications. Of that. Does that make sense? 
And so Fajer is going to read verses 1 through 6, I believe it is, of uh, Ephesians chapter 3. You can listen in, uh, check it out in your Bibles. Uh, Fajer, you can read that for us. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me. For you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it have now been revealed by the Spirit to God, holy obstacle and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel to Gentile, uh, our heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Fajer. Uh, just to kind of get your expectations, we're not going to get very far, quite honestly. Uh, we're not going to get much further than verses 1 and 2, and hopefully we'll get some more covered next week. Uh, but just kind of like adjust your expectations here a little bit. Uh, Paul says, for this reason. And again, when he says that, he's referencing at least some of what he said in chapters 1 and 2. If you want to take out your little bookmark that looks like this, it'll also be up here on the screens. Uh, at Southridge, we often talk about the fact that Scripture is not simply little isolated snippets or stories for personal encouragement and inspiration. Certainly, they may have some of that, but Scripture is largely one story of why we're here, how we got here, the purpose of why we're here, what's going on, and what God is doing to enter that story. In other words, it's actually Scripture seeks to answer what Sterling says in his tweet, we just can't seem to put his finger on. Scripture is one giant story. Notice it begins with creation. God creates Adam and Eve. He walks with them. He's in fellowship with them. He's in peace and harmony. Adam and Eve are in peace and harmony with each other. Satan enters. He tempts Adam and Eve, and he says, Adam and Eve, God's kind of holding out on who you really could be. If you kind of stepped out from under this umbrella of God's provision, of him knowing best, if you kind of like blaze your own trail, if you step out from his umbrella of leadership in your lives, life would actually go better for you. You'd have higher levels of freedom, higher levels of enjoyment. So Adam and Eve actually do just that. They step away from acknowledging God as their provider for life and step out and say, we can probably provide for life on our own. If we call our own shots, we'll do a little bit better than if we subject ourselves to God calling the shots. And that brings about separation. That brings about evil and darkness. And ever since Adam and Eve made that decision, every human being who has ever lived on planet Earth, other than the person of Jesus himself, experiences that separation. Well, throughout the Old Testament, there's anticipation. We won't 
go into that deeply at the moment. And by the way, this is always a work in progress. We've taken a step since we introduced it, I think it was about a year ago. And by the way, it was one of our built together 2025 goals to have our congregation sort of conversant in the storyline of scripture. And so, you know, by the end of this time, we will almost want this to roll off of our tongues. Uh, and at some point, we'll probably connect some verses to these points, maybe connect a sentence or two of explanation. And so this is still constantly evolving, but this is the next step that we're taking. So what, what, Paul, would, what Paul would say is this. He actually says this in the beginning of Ephesians 1. He talks about even before creation, God has his plan. But then he also says, Yes, there's brokenness. He acknowledges that there's been factions, there's been divisions. But Paul sees Jesus stepping into this world through the incarnation. That means Jesus becoming flesh. Incarnation is, is God putting on flesh, becoming human, and coming here himself, as we celebrated just a couple of weeks ago with Christmas. He is crucified on a cross. He's buried in a tomb, and he ascends to heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit, and we live in this season of time called the expansion where God's work is progressing. It's moving forward in the world. And then Paul looks forward to the day, and we'll probably look at this in an upcoming week. He looks forward to the day, even Ephesians chapter 1, where God is going to make all things new. He talks in Ephesians 1 about God reconciling all things together under the person of Jesus. And so there's going to be a judgment of that which is evil, that which is not right, that which does not belong to Jesus, and there's going to be a new creation, only it's going to be a little bit better, so that God's fellowship with human beings is once again restored. Does that make sense? And so Paul says the story that he lives in, the, Paul's narrative for his life, is he lives in the story of knowing that God created him, knowing that there's brokenness, that there's fallenness, that there's evil even in his own heart, but Jesus has stepped into the story, and through being in Christ, who gave his life, who was buried, crucified, and rose again, through Christ, there will one day be a reconciliation, a restoration, the beauty, the peace, the love, the harmony that once existed in the Garden of Eden will once again exist times a million in the new creation. And it won't be in jeopardy of falling as the original creation was. And so Paul says, when he says, for this reason, he's almost essentially talking about that one giant story. That story, that narrative of who Jesus is stepping into this world is the narrative that drives Paul's life. What's a narrative? It's kind of the the story of the facts. It might be the script, how things function, the, the storyline of things being carried out. And there's different kinds of narratives, but there's also this deeply connected to that is, is living within the narrative. And so Paul says, this is the narrative in which I live. The narrative of, yes, I was, a cre cre I was created by God, I was separated from him. Jesus stepped into my life and stepped into this world so that the narrative of my life could be changed and I'm looking forward to a new creation and a new restoration. Paul says, that's the narrative I belong to. Notice he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. 
This narrative of belonging to Jesus is so strong and definitive in Paul's life that he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome. He's literally in a Roman prison. He doesn't even see himself and the events and circumstances of his life as being dictated by the Roman government, even though it's the Roman government that put him in prison. He's so convinced of the narrative of what God is doing. He says, even though I'm in prison, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus, not the Roman government. That's how determined he is to have the narrative of God interpret his life that he reads into his life that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus rather than a prisoner of the Roman government. But I think he's also done something else. Not only does he talk about, yes, he's phys- Paul's physically in prison while he's writing the letter to the Ephesians. He's literally in prison while he's penning this letter to those who live in Ephesus. But also connected to that, Paul would say, I'm also a prisoner of Christ Jesus in the sense that I'm locked into who he is. He's my reality. Other places, Paul says, I'm a servant or a slave to Jesus. Now, the way that that falls on our modern ears is that sounds, obviously, if he mentions prison, that sounds anything but freedom. It sounds like anything except that which gives you freedom to move. But when Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus, yes, it's a physical prison, but he's also saying, being under, belonging to, being in Christ, being connected to him, I'm a prisoner in that. I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm a servant of Jesus. And here's what Paul says, that gives me the greatest freedom I could ever imagine. Here's what I want you to think about. Every one of us, lives by a narrative. This morning, your life is determined by the narrative in which you believe. Some of you may have grown up in terribly abusive homes. And it's it's just heartbreaking for me to even think about that. But the narrative that probably goes through your life And the narrative, there's a script that you follow, is that I'm unworthy. Like I was somehow maybe deserving of the kind of treatment that I got. And that's kind of the narrative of your life, that you're an unworthy person, that you're worthy only of other people's mistreatment. That's a narrative. Some of you may live by the narrative of being a a super performer, Because maybe your mom, or most likely, sometimes dads do this. I shouldn't say most likely, but it often comes from dad. Um, You could never quite meet expectations. You were never quite good enough. You never did enough to earn the compliment, earn the encouragement. And so you're kind of on this performance treadmill to, to somehow achieve the sense of fulfillment that you never quite got. And so your narrative for your life is, I've got to stay on that treadmill and I've got to prove that I'm a success. I've got to prove that I've got it together. Some of you may be on the narrative of, 
that is very prominent in our culture, the narrative of freedom comes through personal autonomy. If I can throw off all shackles, all confining restraints, if I can fully be me, if, if you be you, if I be me, then if I can live into that narrative, that'll bring me freedom. And I love what Sterling says when he says, there's something seems to be wrong because we, we just can't quite seem to find the freedom that we dreamed of. You, listen, friends, your, your life is following a narrative, and listen to me, you're a prisoner of some kind of narrative. You're a prisoner of some kind of narrative. And Paul says, if I'm a prisoner, if I'm a slave, if I'm a servant, if I belong to the narrative of Jesus, that's the only narrative that can actually set me free. Maybe I can put it this way and it can help you because I realize that's kind of a, kind of a, it feels abstract. But so let me put it this way. Uh, when it snows around here, um, which doesn't do too often, but did last Sunday, uh, when it snows, counties, the state, send out salt trucks, all kinds of, why do they do that? Listen to me carefully. Why do they do that? Because you're, you're listen, your car is designed to be a prisoner of the road. And if your car loses the confines of the road, you're in big trouble. Why? Because your car is designed to be a prisoner of the road system. As soon as your car loses traction, loses connection with the road surface, your car loses freedom and you're in a heap of trouble. I remember, I think it was probably, gosh, I don't know, 30, 35 years ago, I, st I still remember this uh, very clearly, I remember driving on 222, I was driving north from Lancaster, I think I was actually at the Pennsylvania Farm Show many, many years ago, and uh, I remember I was probably driving 55, 60, I don't know, my, probably actually not that fast, I was slower than that because the weather wasn't that great, and, and I hit black ice. I can still feel that utter loss of control. There's absolutely, you can just feel the car like, kind of like fishing like this. And thankfully, it kind of like went sideways and slid into the median. And I was concerned I would flip once I hit the kind of the, the bank of snow. And, and I didn't. And I'm just so grateful for that. But let me tell you something. When my car lost contact with the road, when my car was no longer a prisoner of the road, I was in a heap of trouble. And we spend millions of dollars so your car can continue to be a prisoner of the road. Because if your car loses connection with the road, there's big problems. So, so Paul says, you're designed to be connected to God. You're designed to receive life from him. So when Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus, he is actually saying, that's the most free thing I can possibly be. It's where life is found. You know, I prepared this, you know, throughout the week or whatever. And um, I don't know, just probably since yesterday or so, uh, 
I mean, I had actually a lot more stuff to go through this morning, but this just really kind of grabbed traction with my soul. And I, you know, I went outside last night for a walk. It's like nine o'clock and, you know, it's because it was cold, it's like crystal clear and the wind was blowing. And, you know, I just kind of like looked up at the sky. I didn't, wasn't even thinking about it. And for some reason, it just, like, it just really like gravitated to me. Like, I am a prisoner. I am a slave. I am a servant of Jesus Christ who created all that. And it's the most freeing thing you can possibly imagine. To look up at the sky and say, I'm the prisoner of the creator. What an awesome thing. I'm a prisoner of the God who created me, who loves me, who sent his son Jesus here to give his life for me. I'm a prisoner of that God. Literally, I parked my truck usually at the far corner of the parking lot, and, and just as I walked across the parking lot this morning, it's gone through my head as, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I am a slave of Christ. I am a servant of Christ. And friend, that narrative is the most freeing narrative you can possibly imagine. It releases you from what other prison you have. Whatever that prison is, that is not the narrative of Jesus. It promises freedom, but it's a prison. Yes, Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I belong to him. And being in that prison of Jesus, being his slave, being his servant, is the most freeing thing you can possibly imagine because you're now living into the design of who you are. Notice, just moving on here, Paul says, it defines the perspective of who I am. He also mentions that because Jesus is his narrative, that also catalyzes in him doing the work that Jesus has assigned him to do. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. So this isn't Paul saying, oh, like I just like this sort of experiential presence of I worship God in my heart. He says, no, the narrative expands beyond that. Yes, I belong to God. Yes, he sets me free. But Paul also says, I belong to this narrative. And as a result of that, I pour out my life in service to this other people group who is not me and yet needs to know the truth of God's love. Ephesians verse, chapter 3, verse 2, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. What's that deal with the administration? It sounds so administrative, doesn't it? It sounds like, like paper pushing and like pencils. and like What's this administration of God's grace? Paul says, it, the word there literally is, is almost like stewardship. Paul says, I see myself as stewarding an opportunity through which others are exposed to the gospel of Jesus. I see myself as, as living out, as bringing to, as carrying forth the truth of Jesus. I feel a sense of obligation, not a negative sense of obligation, but an opportunity to bring to the Gentiles, to bring to this outside community the beauty and love of who Jesus is. You know, I don't know particularly why this is, except maybe it's on my mind that uh, just 
here in the beginning of 2024, and I don't, didn't really plan to be thinking about this, but the verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 that we looked at back in the fall is kind of running through my mind a lot these days. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 talk about God's grace that saves us, and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And at least for me, my prayer life has escalated these days to say, God, like, what are the good works that you've created me to do? Like, I I don't want to be about my own deal. I don't want to be about what I think Nathan Tucky needs to accomplish. Like, God, shine more light on what are the good works that, for which you literally created me to do. Like, I don't want to just, like, sit and soak. I don't want to just absorb the presence of God. Yes, that's the foundation. That's part of the new life. That's absolutely part of the new life to, to delight and have joy in, in how God relates to us and experience his presence. But Paul says, like, it doesn't stop there. Instead, the narrative of your life is that you're actually created to do something that Jesus Christ planned for you to do. Here's the deal. You're an administrator. You're a deliverer of the truth of the gospel to others around you. Unless you live part of that narrative, you're not fully living into the narrative of Jesus. Now, that doesn't need to look like church, obviously. Certainly can and probably is an important part of it. And we have groups scattered around the perimeter of the auditorium up front. And, and, and every one of these leaders have, have said, like, somehow I want to be a steward of the gospel so that others around me can experience some of the truth of, of who God is. We have hundreds of people who volunteer and children and student ministries and leading worship and tech and ushers and greeters and a thousand other things. And what they're doing is being, like, I want to be a steward of other people knowing and being exposed to and brushing shoulders with the gospel of truth as I, I love and serve others. Some of you may be a mom who has like a lot of busy bodies around you at the season of life. You are a steward, you're an administrator of the gospel to your children. You show them the love of Jesus. You, you love them in a way and cultivate and nurture them in a way where they actually delight in the beauty of who God is. Maybe you're a dad and God's blessed you with children and, and if you're a dad, man, Like God has given to you the responsibility of stewarding, of administrating the gospel in your home. Maybe that looks like an environment of of thankfulness. Maybe it looks like an environment of humility. Maybe it looks like an environment of, of yes, catalyzing your children to, to understand how God has created them, but it doesn't look like cultivating in them this drivenness for performance. And so, so, so you're a steward of leading your children 
to know the personalness of God and the personal love of Jesus. Maybe you have colleagues at work. Maybe you're part of some kind of community group. Like, I don't know what that is, but, but friends, listen. If you live within a narrative of Jesus, you are a steward. You are an administrator of God's grace and his goodness and his gospel moving into the lives of those around you. Maybe that's showing kindness. Maybe it looks like asking somebody how they're doing when they're kicked down into the sidewalk. I don't know what it looks like. But I'm just telling you, Paul sees himself, and he sees himself as having a responsibility to those around him to be a steward of the... That, he says, like, man, like, I'm not just here to sit and soak and enjoy. I, I'm here to accomplish the good works that God has created me in Christ Jesus to accomplish. And my prayer is that through you, you see someone or a group of people or your family as you're the steward of the gospel to them. You're the means by which they come in contact with the person of Jesus. You're the means by which they see the gospel at work. Now, you know, quite honestly, and we'll kind of close with this, um, Paul says that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And we said that's both physical and real as well as like figurative. He's He's the prisoner of, of Christ Jesus in spirit, but he's also literally sitting in a prison. Here's what I want to say. Being a steward of the gospel to others is always inconvenient. It's always messy. It's never sit back in your chair and, ah, like, this is all good. Like, trust me, friend, trust me. If you participate in ministry, if you start leading your family, if you start being an administrator of the gospel, your life will not become less cluttered. It'll become probably more inconvenient. Because it's always messy to be an avenue and channel of the gospel in someone else's life. It's always inconvenient. It's always, it's not the path of least resistance. Trust me, there are people who are deliverers of the gospel to me, and my life can be pretty messy. It can be pretty messy to intersect with where the gospel and how the gospel is at work in my life. It's messy stuff. And so wherever God uses you to sort of love people in Jesus' name, to speak truth to people, loving truth in Jesus' name. To serve people that you would maybe not be naturally inclined to serve. It will be messy. And it will be inconvenient. And you'll get sideways, which simply means you need to gospel more. Paul says, this is what I've built my life on. We're going to conclude with that song. What better way to conclude this short teaching this morning on just a couple of verses in Ephesians 3? By singing the song, Build My Life. Paul says that the defining narrative of my life is the narrative of Jesus.
The defining reality of my life is the narrative that Jesus has stepped not only into my life, but into this world to bring reconciliation, forgiveness, and restoration. So I don't know what narrative you're following this morning, whose narrative you're marching to. It's probably moment to moment for me. It probably is for you too. But as we stand and sing the song, why don't you just sing the song and just in the back of your mind, just like, whose narrative am I following? Whose narrative is in my head? And uh, let's sing the song together and may our narrative be one that's defined by the person of Jesus. song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Beside you, open up my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Jesus, the name above every other name Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. No. 
inside you open up my eyes in wonder show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me thank you for your word. May this week, may we live in the narrative of being in Christ, of knowing we're loved, knowing we belong to the Father in heaven, and knowing that you've created us to do good works, to be the presence of the gospel in the lives of others. We ask this in the name of Jesus and pray that you would accomplish it through the Holy Spirit. And everybody who agreed said, amen. Amen. Our prayer team is down here to the right. Also visit some of the group's tables around the perimeter up front. God bless and have a great day.